If I were to ask you this morning, do you want to make your life better and more enjoyable? I'm pretty positive this morning that there would be an affirmative answer from each and every one of you. After all, who among us does not want to have a better life? Today, it is popular to read books, books that are aimed at our self-improvement. The shelves of our local bookstores are filled with such books. They're just jammed to capacity with these so-called self-help books. The title of these books reveal much about Americans today. It reveals to us our desire not only to improve our lot in life, but to enrich ourselves as well. I'd like to share a couple of titles with you as I begin this morning. Books on our shelves this morning in the local bookstores are such as Passport to Prosperity, Winning Moves, True Greed, Leadership Secrets of Attila the Hun. Sounds like a great book, doesn't it? Winning Through Intimidation, Cashing In on the American Dream, subtitled How to Retire at 35. Guess we missed that one, most of us. The Art of Selfishness, Techniques That Will Take You to the Top. I like this one. How to get what you really want and quick secrets to success. The titles of all of these bestsellers illustrate for us the underlying motivation of self-improvement, which is really greed. These catchy titles are employed by the publishers in order to get you to buy their books. Do you know why? They cynically believe that you are stupid enough to buy in to their faulty logic. They think that you're going to believe the secret to success really lies within the pages of their books. How foolish do they think we are? But the truth is, most of us spend much time dreaming about the way we would like our life to be. Most of us, if we were really honest, would admit to dreaming that we would like to be rich. We'd like to enjoy fabulous wealth and all that it brings. Riches have an intoxicating flavor about it. Besides books, the medium of television is one of the main tools that's employed by the self-help success syndrome folks. Many people will watch those blurry-eyed, they will watch blurry-eyed television commercials, you know, those infomercial deals that are on at 2 o'clock in the morning until they can't go to sleep. What these people are hawking is very clear. These TV con artists make a handsome living off people whose desire is not to work. They believe, and I believe, that most people really would like to find a shortcut to their dreams. You know what I'm talking about. You've seen these guys on TV like Timothy Robbins, the Get Rich Seminars, buy real estate at the bottom and sell it at the top. Their promise always centers around a healthier, wealthier, wiser you. If money's not your driving interest, then there's those who sell relationships. Just dial this psychic hotline, and this Caribbean mystic can solve all your problems by lining you up with the lover that you've been looking for your whole life. Money and relationships, not your bag. How about self-image? Overweight? Just listen to Richard Simmons. Buy his deal a meal plan and you're guaranteed to sweat off those hundred pounds of extra you to the oldies. 
well, all will be well with the world if we just buy into these self-improvement plans being sold to us. It's a simple one, two, three steps to nirvana. These hucksters pitch their lies. All of them are no fuss, no muss. No hits, no runs, no errors. Just send in your bucks for the secret of success and you will enjoy health, wealth, and prosperity. Well, last week we began our look at Christ's evaluation of our lives. He determined through Paul that the self-help methodology of improving one's lot in life is totally bankrupt. As Paul examined his life through the Holy Spirit, he found that his self-righteousness really was just a bunch of garbage. Have you done such self-examination lately? Have you really looked at your life and seen it through God's eyes? How does your life measure up? Maybe you're tired of spinning your wheels this morning in self-effort. Maybe you're tired of being stuck on the treadmill of the performance trap. Maybe your life is characterized by things you'd rather have it not be characterized by. Broken relationships, lost jobs, hopelessness, and depression. Then what you really need to do is apply the principles of this text and the Bible in totality to your life. You really need to listen this morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 3. We're going to pick up where George read for us in verse 12. Again, this text can be found on the Pew Bible if you need to use it. Page 1163. As we begin, I'd like to remind you of the context of this passage. Paul numbered the elements of his righteousness, his self-works, and said he found them wanting. They were nothing but refuse, garbage. For just a moment, I'd like to review the progress that took place in verses 1 through 11 by just looking at the eyes, the eyes in this text, the personal pronoun I. Let us begin in verse 8 where he says, I count all things to be loss. I count all things to be loss. You know, whether or not you have the boat, the big car, the expensive home, if you really look at it from God's viewpoint, those things can really all be counted nothing but a loss. Paul had it all. He had the right pedigree. He had the right religion. He had the right righteousness. He was Jewish. He was a Hebrew. He was a Pharisee. And yet he said, I count all these things to be lost. A little bit further down in the text, he says this, I have suffered the loss of all things. Why was Paul willing to consider his life a total loss? Why was he willing to say, I have nothing, even after he had worked so hard to attain his own righteousness? I believe that he was willing to give up something lesser for something greater in value. Let me ask you, what are you willing to lose this morning for Christ's sake? Paul has a quantum leap in his logic here in verse 8 when he says, I've given up everything, I've lost everything for what? Notice that he says, that I may gain Christ. What are you willing to sacrifice this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ? What are you willing to give up? 
Paul looked at his personal righteousness, all that he had attained, and all his hard works, and he says, look, I'm bankrupt. I am worthless. He added up all his good works, and the bank account was empty. And then he looked at Jesus Christ, and he said, it's my desire that I might gain Christ. I may gain the Lord Jesus Christ because he knew that was true, fabulous wealth and riches. Paul recognized the fruitlessness of the success syndrome that he had been driven by. We cannot gain the pleasure of God or the pleasure of men by our own self-effort. It can only happen as we know him. Paul concludes with these these words from verse 12, verse 11, excuse me. He writes that his internal desire and pleasure would be that I may know him. That I may know him. That I may know him. To know Jesus in such a way that it is a personal, intimate, deep, and abiding relationship. Let me ask you this morning as you take stock of your life. Do you have an intimate, personal relationship with Christ that is growing on a daily basis? I'm not asking you if you're saved. I'm not asking you if you've come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Someday, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 2 years ago, I'm asking if you have a daily, growing relationship with Jesus Christ. You experience communion with Him on a daily basis. Paul's logic reaches its zenith when we see another use of the term I when he says this in verse 11. He exclaims, that I, that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Wow. Wow. What a bizarre, ignomatic statement to make. That I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Does that mean that Paul must commit suicide? in order for him to attain what he desires. May it never be. That is not what Paul intended to say here. What Paul is saying here is that he has such a deep, rich, and abiding personal relationship with Christ that he sees himself having been resurrected in Christ already. He's living his life as he looks forward to that day when he will come out of the grave or he will meet the Savior in the sky. He sees that day as having happened already in his life. He's living the resurrected life. Are you, this morning, living differently because of what Christ did for you at Calvary 2,000 years ago? Is is a personal, deep, and abiding relationship with Christ your driving motivation in life. We've been transformed, those who know Christ, from the dominion of darkness to the domain of light. We're different people. We've been radically transformed. Are we living like that? That's the question this morning. Are you living a resurrected life? We're going to notice in this text that we study this morning that Paul compares his life to a race. And he purposes in his heart as he lives this life, denying all the self 
self-worth that he had, denying all his personal righteousness and his trust in Christ, that he must live this resurrected life with purpose. And he says that you and I must live our lives by pressing on towards the goal. Pressing on towards the goal. Notice in verse 11 with me, but I press on, says Paul, but I press on, but I press on that I may lay hold so that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. But I press on in order that I might be laid hold of by Christ, which was his purposes for my life. Paul certainly knows the wonderful promises of the Word of God. Paul had communion with the Savior in the deserts of Galatia for three years where Jesus taught him personally. He knew the Word of God, literally. He knew that there was no way of losing his salvation. He was not about to lose his eternal security. No power, no principality could rob him of his salvation. Not even Paul's own actions could thwart the redemptive work of Christ in his life. And that's true of you and me, if we've received Christ as our personal Savior. Once saved, always saved. Since this is true, since this is true, since Christ has come to live in our lives and the Holy Spirit empowers us and the Word of God transforms our thinking, then and only then can we do our part in the sanctification process. If we are to grow in Jesus Christ, if sanctification is, uh, must be ours, then we must press on. We must press on towards Christ-likeness. We must press on towards a godly life in this world. That's why Jesus saved us. How are you doing this morning? How are you doing at the resurrected life? Is Christ central in your life this morning? Are you being changed into who He is? Christ laid hold of us to be a peculiar people, to be ambassadors for His cause. We are to press on to Christ-likeness. We are to press on to Christ-likeness. All the while, we must live in the midst of a, a wicked and a perverse society. Let me ask you, are you happy with your Christian growth this morning? Are you happy where you find yourself this morning in that growth process and becoming like Jesus Christ? Are you pressing on? Are you trying? Or have you just given up? I've met a lot of Christians like that in my, in my Christian experience as a minister. People who just give up on the Christian life. It's too hard, they say. Why should I have to struggle and struggle when Jesus was supposed to give me the victory? Paul says here that we are to press on. There was a woman, her name was June, whose husband showed no evidence of being a believer. Her husband Greg had told her that when he was a young man, he had gone forward in a service, that he had been baptized, and that when he had grown into adult, an adult, that he had actually even taught an adult Sunday school but he had given it all up. He had drifted away. And there was absolutely now not one shred of evidence in his life that he was a believer. He didn't go to church. He wasn't interested in spiritual things. Yet June would become irritated when she would ask Greg about his faith and he said he considered himself still to be a Christian. 
Let me ask you, do you think Greg is saved? Do you think Greg will be in heaven with other believers when Christ returns? The pertinent question that's found in this illustration is, what do Christians act like? How do they behave? How do we explain such situations as Greg? Did Greg lose his salvation? Maybe he accepted Christ for just a short period of time and then gave his salvation back or it was taken from him because of his behavior. Maybe it was just one big charade. Maybe he acted like he had become a Christian and really had. Does that prove that he really isn't one of God's chosen? But on the other hand, maybe, maybe Greg was truly a believer. Maybe he was just not growing in his Christian life. Maybe he had just receded to the point in his spirituality where you could not tell the difference between himself and an unbeliever. Maybe he was caught in that slew of despond. Maybe Greg was just deep in sin. How do we explain such things? How do we explain that if that's the condition of our lives? Oh, I made a profession for Jesus Christ, but now my life does not reflect him at all. I have evil thoughts. I do things that would make him ashamed. Am I a Christian? Did I really not accept him? Am I deep in sin? You know, there's a lot of biblical characters that we could point to that had major flaws, made major mistakes in their life. The same things that Greg probably struggled with. Is he a believer? Or is he just stuck with bad habits and addictions that his personality might want to hold on to? Is he backslidden? Is he a carnal Christian who just can't deal with his life because he's totally self-centered? This I know, that each of us struggles with sin. You struggle with sin. I struggle with sin because of the nature of who we are. We have that old Adamic man that still lives with inside of us. How do we explain this? I believe that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in this text. He struggles with Christ-likeness in his life just as much in, as each of us does. He said if we are to ever become like Christ, we must push on in this road to Christ-likeness with much effort. Yes, we are saved by grace. Yes, we are kept by grace. But we must do our part in the process. Forgiveness is ours for the asking, but we must ask. I'd like you to notice here that Paul admits that he is dissatisfied. He's dissatisfied with his own progress in sanctification. Believers must never be satisfied with their current status. You and I as Christians must never, ever be satisfied with where we find ourselves in the Christian life. Look with me at verse 12. I do not, I do not, says Paul, regard myself as having attained it yet. I haven't arrived, says Paul. I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it, he says in verse 13. Paul had not arrived. No one will ever arrive to spiritual likeness to Christ in this life. Not until we enter the celestial city. 
Not until we enter into the very presence of God will we have arrived. Paul says, I have not arrived. I'm still growing. I'm still on that journey just like you are. I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, we have not arrived yet. You and I are still in the process of being remade, remolded into the shape and into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if we haven't arrived, what should we be doing? If salvation isn't the only experience in the Christian life, if that's just the beginning, then what should we be doing, Pastor? Look with me at verse 13 and 14, where Paul exhorts us, but this one thing I must do. Do these two things. Do these three things. Do these things for to Christ-likeness, says Paul, right? No, he says, do this one thing. This one thing I do, I press on toward the goal. I press on, I press on, I press on. I'm marching on the goal line. Now, I don't want you to leave this place discouraged this morning. I don't want you to feel like you've been beat up by the pastor this morning. I want you to leave here and know that you can do it. Paul says for us to press on. You can press on in the Christian life. I don't care what your life has been like. If we look back at the Bible, we see some really unseemly characters. Let me remind you of a few names of people who had terrible mistakes in their life. Abraham. Noah, Lot, David, Peter, many others had major falls in their lives. They had tremendous failure in sinful experiences that followed them for the rest of their lives, but still they trusted in Jesus Christ, and that's why you and I trust in the gospel of grace. It's the gospel of grace, not the gospel of works. Grace gives us hope. It is the gospel of grace in which we stand. It is not the gospel of grace which saves us and the gospel of works that keeps us. It's the gospel of grace that saves us and it's the gospel of grace that keeps us. We often have difficult times. We often fail. Many of us look to those past failures in our life and we let those past failures rob us of what God would have us have today and enjoy. We let those past failures rob us of the Christian life, the sanctification process from continuing, enjoying an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus. Paul clearly has argued to this point in the text that his own righteousness has not attained it for him. I have not arrived, said Paul. It began for him surely on the road to Damascus when that great light blinded him. And he's, Jesus said to Paul, why do you persecute me? It was on that road that Paul was justified, that he was saved. But now he is speaking of his sanctification, how to live effectively in this life that God has granted to us. Paul says, I'm dissatisfied. I'm dissatisfied with where I find myself. How about you? Are you satisfied in your spiritual progress? Are you more like Christ today than last week? 
Are you more like Christ today than you were five years ago? Many of us can say that Christ is Savior, but not Lord of our lives. We are the Lord of our lives in many ways. That's what sanctification is to change. That's why we are to press on. Paul uses the illustration here of the Olympic Games and a runner running the race. You can almost see the runner striving and straining to reach the goal line to break the tape and to win the prize. Now, I don't want you to be misunderstood here. I don't want to be misunderstood, and I don't want Paul to be misunderstood the illustration that he uses here, the Christian life is not a competitive event against other Christians. You're not racing against me, and I'm certainly not racing against you. We are racing and competing only against three other people. Me, myself, and I. That's the race. There are three competitors in this race. Me, myself, and I. Will I continue to work towards the goal? Will I continue to strive towards the finish line? Will I change? Will I become more like Christ? Despite the pitfalls of life, despite the disappointments of life, press on. Press on. Press on. This one thing I do, says Paul, I press on. There are no magic formulas, no magic bullets. God's given us His Word. He's given us His Spirit. He's given us all that we need to accomplish the tax. Now, Paul was a type A personality, maybe like you. Paul was an individual who was a perfectionist. When he says that I have not arrived, what he means is that God is continuing to work in his life. Even though Paul was a missionary who went to the far ends of the earth, who started countless churches, who led countless people to Christ, who was used to pen the very words of Scripture, he says, I have not arrived yet. I have not arrived yet. I have not arrived yet. I am just a man like you. Paul was just a man like you and me. And God was still working in his life. Believers are to press on to win the prize. Look with me at verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize, for the prize, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Returning to that illustration of the athlete that he used in verse 13, Paul says the purpose of being in the race is to win the prize. The marathon runner doesn't go through those 26.4 miles of excruciating pain and suffering for nothing. He runs the race to win the prize. Our goal clearly in the Christian life is to win the upward call of the Lord Jesus. That is the prize, the upward call of our Lord Jesus. We are to press on towards that prize, towards that upward call. Do you have one purpose in mind? Living for Christ? Or are there other concerns that have taken over your life? Maybe Jesus and serving Him is no longer the goal of your life. Maybe it's to get that promotion, the big house. Maybe it's your children that have become your God, or retirement could be just old-fashioned things like pride 
or knowledge or power. Don't let anything derail you from the privilege of knowing and pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ intimately. You and I live a difficult life. This life is like running the gauntlet. There's pain and suffering in this life. But there's a prize at the end of the gauntlet as Christ helps us maneuver through it. The prize is the upward call of Jesus Christ. What are you afraid of this morning? Your past mistakes? Don't let those rob you as you run this race to finish well. Press on towards the goal. Perhaps fear made them go back when they should have gone forward. What is it that's from your past that's making you fail? Making you go back instead of go forward in the Christian life. Pressing on, pressing on despite the hardships, the difficulties, and the failures of life. You see, many Christians run this race, get knocked over by the difficulties cut apart by the failures of their life. What are you focused on this morning? Is it your fear of failure? Your past picadillos? Are you taking three steps forward and moving two steps back? Or are you pressing on? Pressing on, knowing that you can make it through the gauntlet, not being afraid. Afraid of the past. Look with me at verse 13. Forgetting what lies behind, says Paul. Forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Pressing on means forgetting about the past. What happened in the rearview mirror of life does not matter, but it can derail us from the plans and purposes of God in our life. When we let sin control us, we forget that Christ died for those sins and paid for those sins at the cross. We magnify them in our lives instead of minimizing them as Christ did. If we are to ever press on to maturity in this Christian life, we must put the sins of the past behind us. Put them where they belong, in the column, as being paid for by the righteousness of Christ. You and I can never make up with all our striving and working and trying the college effort to pay for those things we did in the past because Jesus paid for them all. There's a story about two Moodist monks, monks walking in a thunderstorm. They came to a swollen stream and there was a beautiful young Japanese girl in a kimono standing, waiting to cross to the other side. But because of the currents of the river, she could not. So one of the monks spoke up and said, Can I help you? I need to cross the stream, replied the young lady. So the monk marched over, her, over to her, picked her up and put her on his shoulders, carried her through the swirling water and put her down on the other side. As he and his fellow companion, the other monk, walked and made their way to the monastery, his companion questioned him and said, I have a bone to pick with you, brother. As monks, we're not to take and touch women. Our vows don't even allow us to talk to them. And yet back there at the river, you did both. My brother, answered his fellow monk, I put the woman down on the other side of the river 
it looks to me as though you're still carrying her with you. Put your past behind you. How easy it is to become obsessed with the things of the past and to carry them with us into the future. Remember that Lancelot was only successful in pressing on in the gauntlet because he did not have the fear of the past to stop him. Press on by focusing on the future. Focus on the future. That means our total commitment and aim must be towards what lies ahead. And what lies ahead is that beautiful and glorious day when our Lord and Savior will come in the air and call us home to His eternal presence. And there He will grant to us beautiful rewards beyond all our imagination, all our dreams, if we are pressing on and being faithful in this life. How do you look at life? How do you look at your past? How do you look at the Christian experience? In December 1914, Thomas Edison had a huge complex in Edison, New Jersey, in which all his current work was taking place. His inventions were being tested. On New Year's Eve, he woke up in the middle of the night to find all of those buildings engulfed in flames, and they burned to the ground. Not one thing remained. The next morning, Edison walked amongst the rubble from that fire, and at 67 years of age, he remarked, there's great value in disaster. There's great value in disasters. All our mistakes are burned up, said Edison. Thank God we can start anew. All of your sin and all your picadillos, all of your past mistakes were burned up at the cross of Calvary. Move on and look towards the future and start anew each and every day. Press on in the Christian life. Press on to godliness. Press on to Christ-likeness. As you don't have to worry about the past. Let us resolve, as Paul did, that we forget the things that lie behind us and we press on towards the future, our pilgrimage with Christ. Sometimes our Lord must liberate us from the past, and that can be a painful process if He's ever to lead us into a fruitful future. Paul continues this thought, looking at his life in verse 15, saying much about himself and us, in that if we are to ever have this future, we must have the right attitude. Look with me at verse 15. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. Have this attitude. If there is anything, you can have a different attitude. God will reveal that also to you. The point that Paul is making here is that if we are to move forward in our Christian life, if we are to progress, if we are to press on, then we must have the right attitude. Unfortunately, many texts interpret the first part of this verse as saying, let us therefore as many as who are perfect in the wrong way. That word perfect, some people construe to mean that they never make any mistakes, but the better word to translate that is as James Moffat does in his version, is mature. Listen how Moffat translates it, and he's no relative of mine, by the way. He puts it this way. For those of our number who are mature, 
This must be their point of view. God will reveal that to any of you who look at things differently. We must have a new attitude. A new attitude about the past. A new attitude about the future. A new attitude about life. A new attitude about grace. God's wonderful grace. Are you growing in grace this morning? Are you growing in God's liberating grace? Has it changed your attitude from one of legalism or licentiousness to one of pressing on towards Christ-likeness? Stop judging other people and what they're doing and look at your own life and change. Change to be like the wonderful Lord and Savior who gives us eternal life. Lord, change my attitude, says Paul. Lord, change my attitude, each and every one of us should say. Help me, Lord, to forget about those mistakes in the past, the ones you die for, and press on towards a wonderful future. Look with me at verse 16. We often adopt the world's attitude towards life, and that puts us oftentimes in rebellion against God. But Paul says in verse 16, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. The standard is God's standard, not the standard that everybody else has around us because the world's going to hell, because they're going down to a bridge and jumping off. It doesn't mean that you and I should. Let's God's standard be ours and we will attain Christ-likeness. Our growth will definitely be inhibited if we do not have the Word of God as our standard. Again, notice in this section that Paul now shifts away from the I, the pronoun I, I press on. Notice the shift here. He says what in verse 16? Let us, let us, let us keep living. The focus is now moved from the individual who presses on to Christ-likeness to the Christian community, the corporate church that is pressing on together, living in community. We cannot be isolated. There are so many home Baptists out there. So many people who think they can live the Christian life in isolation. You can never, ever be what God wants you to be without your brothers and sisters in Christ. We must live in community. Let us, let us press on. You see, there's great comfort and strength when people work together. When people come together as a group and they lock arms together and they move in the same direction with the same purposes, the same plans, and the same goals. There was once a young and gifted art student in olden times in Greece named Timotheus. He received instruction in art from a well-known teacher of the day. After several years of training, this young, talented artist painted what he considered to be an exquisite picture. He was commended for his work. All those who viewed it thought that he had produced a wonderful painting. And Timotheus gazed upon his creation day after day. He put down his brush and did not paint anymore, for he thought he could never move beyond that point. One morning as he sat admiring his wonderful work, gazing at the painting, he realized that he had made a mistake. For as he lifted the cover on the painting that had protected it, there was black blotches painted all over it, and he burst into tears. He could not understand who would do such a thing to his wonderful, precious painting, his cherished possession, and then his wise 
wonderful teacher walked in. I did it for your own good, Timotheus, said his teacher. I did it for your own good. You see, the painting was keeping you from progressing. Well, it was an excellent piece of art, Timotheus. It was keeping... Each of us needs to learn the lesson that we are not perfected yet. We are maturing. We are moving on. We cannot become self-satisfied with the work that God has done in our life. We must continue to press on. Let us grow together. Our Master in Heaven will never be satisfied with us until the day we arrive in His presence there. The Bible, just a casual reading of the Bible, reveals to us that there are many who became self-satisfied in their progress. They didn't think they had to do anything else to please God. And they were in for great falls. And then there are those who did press on to greater goals and did beyond all that they were able to think that they could ever do. I'm reminded of those who made foolish decisions. I think of Lot, who chose the evil place because it looked good to him. I think of Samson, a great judge in Israel, who gave up serving God for the pleasure of the moment. Samson, who finished his life literally shackled and in bondage when the roof caved in on him. How about Saul, who chose was chosen, I should say, by God to lead his people, and yet later Saul would reject God and die by the sword. There are many of those who failed in serving God, in pressing on. John, uh, Jonah, the defiant pro prophet, refused to do the will of God, as you will remember, and he ended up in the belly of a whale. Or how about Ananias and Sapphira, the couple who valued real estate on earth more than the reward of God in heaven? On the positive side, there's Joseph. Joseph, who was betrayed by his brothers, placed in bondage, and yet God brought him to the place of being prime minister of Egypt. Consider John Mark, who failed in missions, refused to go out on the missions project with Paul, and yet God would later use him in a great missions field project. Let me ask you this morning, are you pressing on? Are you keeping on? Are you looking past those failures of your life and moving towards maturity? Sometimes we feel like quitting. Sometimes we feel like we don't measure up, but we must remember that it's God's grace that we trust in, not in our own efforts, not in our self-efforts to change our lives and reform us. It is the grace of God in which we trust. You don't need to spend $10 at the bookstore. You don't need to spend $150 on some video series to change your life. You need to believe the Bible. Believe the Word of God and apply it to your life. Press on. Press on. Let us, in community, encourage one another to be all that God would have us to be. Are you willing? Let's pray together.